Book Three, Chapter Six of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. Lady Bridget always looked back upon the next few days as a confused nightmare. She awoke in the grip of fever, that malarial kind which is common in Australia, tried to get up as usual, but fell back upon her bed, faint and dizzy. Her brows ached. She had alternations of burning heat and icy coldness. There came active periods in the dull lethargy, which is often a phase of fever, and from which she only roused herself at the spur of some urgent call on her faculties. One of these was Willoughby Moore's anxious message of inquiry conveyed by Maggie, to which she had the presence of mind to return the answer that she had caught cold and was staying in bed for the present, but would no doubt be quite well shortly. Also, that she was sorry not to bid him good-bye, but begged that he would not think of postponing his departure. She heard, as in a dream, the sound of the mailman's arrival, and presently of the saddling of horses in the yard, and then the clop-clop of their feet, as they were ridden past her end of the house to the gully crossing. There were two horses. So Maul had left the head-station with Harry the Blower, as she had bidden him do. She was conscious of relief. She realised, in bewildered fashion, that Moore was gone out of her life at Mungar, and connected the sound of his horse's departing feet with the thud of Sir Luke Tallant's hall door, when he had left her at the first interview, which had led to their final quarrel. From that effort of memory she sank again into mental coma. Maggie took it to be natural sleep, and laid the mail-bag just brought by Harry the Blower on her mistress's bed to await her awakening. Much later in the day, on the return of Mr. Ninnis and the other men from their cattle-muster, finding the bag still untouched, Maggie broke the seals at her mistress's dazed order, and having sorted out Lady Bridget's letters, carried away the bag for Ninnis to take his own mail. But Lady Bridget paid no heed to her letters, and thus it happened that for the time being she was quite unaware of an event which was of great importance to her. She had been scarcely even distantly conscious of the hue and cry and general excitement at the head-station, when it was discovered that the prisoner had escaped. Harris had his own suspicions, it might be said, his certainties, but the man's crafty nature bade him keep his accusations for an opportunity when he ran less risk of being worsted. He meant to wait until McKeith's return. Meanwhile, what he had not been prepared for was Willoughby Moore's departure with the mailman before he himself came back from an unsuccessful hunt after the fugitives. That move had lain outside his calculations. He had gleaned enough from Mrs. Hensor, as well as from his own observation, to feel sure that Maule and Lady Bridget were in love with each other, and he had never supposed that they would part so abruptly. The head-station was very short-handed in the absence of Ninnis and the stockman, and Harris had been obliged to go out by himself on the man-hunt. He did not know the country of the head of the gully, where he concluded that Wombo was hiding, and lost himself in the Gadea scrub. Thus he was in a very disagreeable temper when he at last arrived at the bachelor's quarters. To Lady Bridget the day passed, and all the seemingly distant noises of it, like a phantasmagora of vision, sound, impressions, the echoes of station activity, the Chinaman's pigeon English as they weeded the front garden, Tommy Hensor's voice when he brought the cook a nestful of eggs some vagrant hen had laid in the grass tussocks, the men going forth with the tailing mob, and at intervals the scorching recollection of that hinted scandal concerning Colin and Mrs. Hensor, of which Maul had told her, horrible, unbelievable, and yet. Then, after a long while, with lucid breaks in the dreamy stupor, she heard the roar of Ninnis's incoming mob of wild cattle from the range. 
she could even wonder whether he had been able to muster that herd of five hundred or so for the sale-yards she knew that her husband was counting upon the sale of these beasts probably at six pounds a head to enable him to fight the drought by a speedy sinking of artesian bores she felt herself reasoning quite collectedly on this subject until the roar of beasts turned into the roar of the almighty atlantic breaking against the cliffs below castle gaverick she saw the green waves real as the heaving backs of the cattle alive leaping and she herself seemed tossed on their crest she saw and felt the cool embrace of the wave fairy she had once tried to paint for jane gildea's book oh she had never fully appreciated the strength of that now inappeasable longing for the celtic home the celtic traditions which had been born in her she had never known how much she loved castle gaverick how much she loathed the muggy heat the flies and the mosquitoes now brought by last night's rain the fierce glare beating upon the veranda the sun-motes dancing on the boards the appearance late that evening of mrs hensor who having heard the mistress was ill had come down partly from curiosity partly from genuine humanity to see what might be amiss was the next thing that roused lady bridget from her fever lethargy maggie told me you'd been out in the rain last night and had caught cold and i thought mr mckeith would wish me to ask if i could do anything mrs hensor said lady bridget sat up in bed for the moment her most haughty self thank you but there's no occasion for you to trouble mrs hensor i would have sent for you if i had required your services and i'm not aware that i was engaged to give them snorted mrs hensor it was out of consideration for mr mckeith that i came i've got quite enough to do at the quarters and i'm really glad not to have to trouble myself down here what with ninnis wanting extra cooking and mr harris in such a rage over wombo's getting away i'm wondering if you heard anything last night of that lady bridget and harris has put out too over mr moore going off with harry the blower while he was hunting for the black boy however mrs hensor concluded the master will be here to-morrow to see into the rights of things how do you know that the master will be here to-morrow asked bridget sharply harry the blower brought me a letter from mr mckeith replied mrs hensor with malign triumph i suppose he thought you'd be too busy doing things with mr moore to bother over the station affairs and that mr ninnis might be out on the run and so he wrote to tell me that he wanted done as he often used to before lady bridget closed her eyes and leaned back against the pillows trying hard to control the muscles of her face and not to betray her mortification moreover she was certain that mrs hensor had stated the exact truth i should prefer to be alone she said feeling the woman's eyes upon her then i'll go as you don't want me returned mrs hensor but if i was you lady bridget i'd take a dose of laudanum and get myself into perspiration for i believe it's a touch of dengue fever you've got the matter with you a touch of dengue in tropical australia may be serious or the reverse sharp and short and critical or tedious and less dangerous lady bridget's case was the sharp short kind demanding prompt treatment when mckeith came home the following day he found her delirious and incapable of recognising him worn out as was the strong man's frame not only with the wild jealousy and tortured love but with sleepless nights of patrol work days in the shearing shed sharp fighting with a second conflagration fortunately put out before much damage had been done and a final dispersion of unionist forces colin never for one instant relaxed his watch by bridget's side all night he tended her fighting the fever as he had fought the fire at breeza downs plying her with continued fermentations dosing her with quinine laudanum and the various medicines he had found efficacious for never was a better doctor for malarial fever than colin mckeith 
he had had so much experience of it when towards morning she fell into a profuse sweating and he had to change and wring out the blankets in which he had wrapped her he knew that the fever danger was past she awoke at midday from a deep health-restoring sleep so weak however that her bones felt like water and her face looked as white as the pillowcase but her brain was clear she saw that there was no one else in the room which was still in great disorder the blankets hot and heavy were almost unbearable but she had not strength to fling them off it felt frightfully warm for the time of year and the air that came in through the open french window seemed to be blowing from an oven the sky as she glimpsed it from her bed between the veranda eaves and the railings looked curiously dark and had a lurid tinge lifting herself slightly she became aware that colin was in the veranda with his back to her looking out over the plain the set of his figure as he bent forward with his hands on the railings and his eyes apparently strained towards the horizon reminded her of the determined hunch of his square shoulders and the dogged droop of his head when he had ridden away with harris and the organizer she called faintly colin he turned round instantly and came to the bed she stared up at him frightened at the look in his face something dreadful must have happened she was too weak to go over coherently in her mind the sequence of events and feelings she only sensed a menacing spectre monstrous terrifying she could not realize her own share in the catastrophe she felt was impending she could not believe that colin could change so much in less than ten days everything had come about with such incredible swiftness his face looked haggard ravaged the cheeks seemed to have fallen in the features were rigid as if cut out of metal the whites of his eyes between the reddened lids were very bloodshot and the eyes themselves seemed balls of blue fire there was not a shade of kindliness in them only the gleam of a fixed purpose which no entreaties would alter she could imagine that he might have looked like that when as a young boy he had beheld the mutilated bodies of his father mother sisters stretched stark after the blacks had done their hideous work and it was true that he did feel now somewhat as that boy had felt for again to his tortured imagination that which he held dearest seemed to be lying foully murdered before his eyes she his love had been ravished from him and he could only regard her as dead to him for evermore colin she gasped what is the matter the muscles of his face relaxed it seemed automatically as if there were no soul behind he laughed a dry ironic laugh never mind you mustn't speak he felt her pulse examined her as a doctor might have done all without a word and straightened the blankets and pillows you must have food he said and went out she heard him calling maggie after a few minutes he came back with a tumbler of beaten egg and milk to which he had added brandy and told her she must drink it her hand was too weak to hold the tumbler he put one arm under the pillow raised her head and held the glass to her lips until she had drunk every drop of the mixture all this with no show of tenderness or one unnecessary word she needed the nourishment and stimulant and after them felt better i remember i must have been ill what was the matter with me dengue he answered shortly i was out in the rain i got a chill i remember oh you were out in the rain i should have thought you could have done what you wanted without that the bitterness of his tone was gall-like and again the ironic laugh she winced and drew her head aside 
he took away his arm instantly from behind the pillow and straightened himself looking down on her still with that dreadful light in his eyes she could not bear it and turned her head away from him don't look at me i'm going to get up no i, I think you'll stay where you are his voice broke slightly but hardened again i won't talk to you i won't let you speak a word yet that will come afterwards but i don't understand better not now i'll tell you this you're through the fever it won't come back if you do as i tell you you understand something about dengue you'll stop here till you're stronger you've got to take the brandy eggs and milk till you feel sick of it today you'll have slops i've told maggie about preparing your food if the fever comes back it won't if you keep quiet but if it does hot bottles blankets laudanum i've mixed the doses until you get into a sweat remember that and you'll have someone in your room tonight in my room you what do you mean it won't be me i'm going away going away what is it she noticed that he turned and looked at the sky why is it so dark and the heat so stifling she asked these damn unionists have fired the only good pasture left on moongar it's been burning since two o'clock this morning i sent the men out now i'm going myself to save what i can he left the room abruptly in a minute or two she heard him outside calling kaji harris and then giving the order to saddle up she got out of bed and tottered to the window she could see now the wide range of the disaster the lurid haze was spreading the horizon shrinking and the air was hotter than ever the fire seemed still a long way off but there was nothing to stop the flames if once they reached the great plain the course of the river here at best a mere string of shallow waterholes was quite dry the rain of the other night had been too insignificant and local to do any good the brown mud strip round the lagoon below was not perceptibly diminished she knew that the narrow water channels flowing from their one working artesian bore must soon be licked up by the flames and the bore in process of construction was at a standstill for want of workmen bridget gazed out despairingly towards the shrinking horizon and upon the parched plain with the rugged clumps of dun-coloured gum-trees scattered upon it the near ones looking like trees of painted tin sun-blistered the swarms of flies mosquitoes in the veranda offended her she disliked the cattle-dogs mooching round with hanging jaws and slavering tongues the ferocious chuckle of a great grey kingfisher the bird which white people called the laughing jackass perched on the branch of a gum-tree beside the fence made her shudder because the bird's soulless cachination seemed an echo of colin's laugh ah that was the bush undivested of romance hard brutal vindictive in spite of the mocking verdure of her honeymoon spring and colin was a part of the bush he resembled it he too could be strong and sweet and tender as the great blossoming white cedar down by the lagoon as rills of running water making the plain green when his desires were satisfied and he could be brutal and vindictive likewise when any one dared to thwart his will and defy his prejudices she staggered about the room feminine instinct prompting her to freshen her appearance to change her soiled crumpled nightdress to throw a piece of lace over her dishevelled head to pull up the linen sheets which had been rolled clumsily to the foot of the bed so that the blankets could be wrapped round her but she sank again presently exhausted on her pillows in a short time mckeith came back booted and spurred and stood as before looking at her with forbidding sternness you'd better have stopped quiet 
I've told Mrs. Hensor to come down and look after you. She knows what to do. Bridget cried out passionately. I won't have that woman in my room. How dare you tell her to come near me? Dare? That seems a queer way to put it. However, you can order her out if you don't want her. There's Maggie, and I'm sending Ninnis back tonight. When are you coming home? I can't say. I've got things to do and to think about. His words and his manner seemed to convey a sinister meaning. I see. You are angry about the black boy. If you want to know, I will tell you exactly what happened. He laughed again, and his laugh sounded to her insulting. Oh, I know what has happened. You needn't tell me. I had some conversation with Harris this morning. I know everything. And now I've got to settle in my own mind how things are going to go on. She went very white and repeated dully. How things are to go on between you and me you don't imagine do you that they can go on the same no she retorted with spirit certainly they can't go on the same maggie had come along the veranda and was at the french window mr harris says he's ready sir and the horses all right mckeith went out of the door but turned and paused as if he were going to speak to his wife but he thought better of it and walked rapidly away perhaps because she avoided his look she supposed that he was infuriated with her because of her part in Wombo's escape, and she thought his anger unjust. No doubt, too, he suspected Maul's connivance, and she knew that he was furiously jealous of Maul. But surely he would understand that she must have sent Maul away. What more can a wife do in the case of an over-insistent lover, and how should a husband expect an explanation when he had literally thrown her into her lover's arms, or at least had left her defenceless against his solicitations? Had he treated her differently after the Wombo episode in the beginning, she might have told him the truth about her former relations with Willoughby Moore. As things had been, it was rather for Moore than for Colin that she found excuse. She was bitterly hurt and offended against her husband. Oh, yes, he was right. They could never again be the same to each other. If he had come back penitent, pleading for forgiveness, overwhelmed with contrition at her dismissal of Moore, she might then perhaps have explained everything, and they might have become reconciled. But now his vile temper, his insupportable manner, his dominant egoism made any attempt at conciliation on her part impossible. She had a temper too, she told herself, and her anger was righteous, and she also had an egoism that wouldn't allow itself to be trampled on. She had rights, of birth, of breeding, to say nothing of her rights of wifehood and womanhood, for which she must insist upon respect. If he would not bend to her, even to show her ordinary consideration and courtesy, then she would not lower her pride one iota before him. Thoughts of this kind went through her mind as she lay smarting under the burning sense of outrage until the reappearance of Mrs. Hensor. Then the new effort she made in sending away the woman exhausted brain and body and left her with scarcely the power to think, certainly not to reason. End of Book 3 Chapter 6